Welcome to Skim This. We're kicking things off this week by checking in on the week's biggest wins and fails. From Liz Truss resigning as UK Prime Minister to a major win for your wallet, thanks to our unlikely friend, the IRS. Also on the show, we're skimming the stakes of the upcoming midterm elections and breaking down three things you need to know before you head to the polls next month. And to wrap things up, we're taking a look at the wild world of mega pumpkin growing. A competition so intense, you'll beg Netflix to make a reality show about it. When my pumpkin hits the scale, I climb up on it, flexing my muscles, yelling, high-fiving. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. Let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... I recognize, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. That's UK Prime Minister Liz Truss, or should we say former Prime Minister. Today, she resigned after only 44 days in office. One tabloid has set up a live stream of a head of lettuce to see if it outlasts the beleaguered leader. Here's a quick skim of what happened. Truss took over from former PM Boris Johnson, who resigned in scandal back in July. There was this thing where his administration was caught ignoring their own COVID-19 rules and throwing parties. And then he promoted a lawmaker, even though he allegedly knew the guy had been accused of sexual misconduct. After he stepped down, the Brits were hoping for a peaceful transition and a break from the drama, especially considering many were still mourning the passing of Queen Elizabeth II last month. But bad news Brits, because trust came into office and caused a ruckus immediately. She announced a series of very controversial tax cuts that caused the British pound to plummet and UK markets to go crazy. And considering the UK was already dealing with inflation that's higher than it is here in the US, hovering around 10%, that economic turmoil was about as welcome as an American saying, I love your British accent. Truss's own party started to turn against her, calls mounted for her to leave her post, and today she finally did it. As for what's next for the UK, well, people are hoping the country finds some political stability ASAP. Conservative party leaders have to decide on a replacement, and there are even rumors that Boris Johnson could come out of retirement to lead the party once again. Up next, we're covering something a little closer to home. Big news from the IRS overnight, announcing a change that will lower the tax bill for many Americans. Finally, some good money news. Everyone's been feeling the pinch from inflation, and it looks like the Internal Revenue Service is taking notes. This week, they released new tax brackets adjusted for inflation. That means next year, you might end up paying a lower tax rate, even though your real income stayed the same. Technically, the IRS adjusts tax brackets every year for inflation, but the changes are usually so small, we don't notice. The IRS does this to account for bracket creep, which is what happens when inflation outpaces your increase in pay. And this year, thanks to record high inflation and wages not keeping up, 
experts say Americans are about to save some real money on their taxes. So here's what you need to know. Number one, the threshold for each federal income tax bracket jumped higher by about 7%. That means, for example, that single filers making around $89,000 in 2022 can now save around $6,000 more in 2023 on their federal income tax. And P.S., we're going to leave a link to the new brackets in our show notes. The second thing to know is that the standard deduction is also getting a makeover, and it's going to be beefier. Now, married couples filing together can claim a standard tax deduction of $27,700. That's up from $25,900. For singles, that tax deduction will also jump about $1,000. So while we never really look forward to tax season, it seems like 2023 could be the year that changes. For our final headline, we're diving into the drama-filled year for Netflix. Streaming giant Netflix announced it was still losing subscribers, nearly a million in the last three months. But the streamer is trying to prove it can make a Hollywood comeback. Netflix shares shot up about 14% this week, after the company revealed better-than-expected earnings on Tuesday. It's been a long year for the OG streamer. As a reminder, stock prices tumbled this spring after the company reported it lost almost a million subscribers. Netflix also faced criticism that its productions were too expensive and not premium enough for what audiences want. No kissing, no heavy petting, and no sex of any kind. I don't even know how I'm gonna make it through these next few weeks. I hope I don't die. But now, it's looking like things might be back on track. On Tuesday, Netflix revealed they added almost 2.5 million global subscribers in the third quarter, particularly coming from the Asian markets. Execs hinted that the success of Stranger Things Season 4 and the movie The Gray Man helped move the needle. Plus, while their numbers may be up, it also looks like Netflix is going after password sharing once and for all. So, spoiler, starting next year, you won't be able to use your ex's cousin's ex's account. Starting in 2023, users will be prompted to make sub-accounts for profiles Netflix thinks are outside of your household. But if that's got you stressed about your budget, don't worry. You can still save some cash and watch Bridgerton with another new option from Netflix, their basic with ads subscription you can sign up for an ad-supported account that'll cost you about $6.99 per month. And that new plan drops this November. A few weeks ago, President Biden made a splash when... President Biden announced his long-awaited student loan debt forgiveness plan. That highly anticipated announcement today by President Biden on student loan debt forgiveness. Giving relief to millions of Americans, but not everyone is happy. Seeking to deliver on one of his biggest campaign promises, that plan would forgive up to $20,000 in loan debt for borrowers. And this week, the U.S. government officially launched the application for people to apply to get up to $20,000 of federal student loans forgiven. Since the application's soft launch last Friday, over 8 million Americans have already hit submit. That's not quite breaking the internet, but it's close. And people keep saying that this form takes less than a minute to fill out. So we're putting that theory to the test, 
and skimming the app, plus who qualifies, in 60 seconds. Okay, before we get to the form, let's do a quick refresher on who's eligible. About 95% of Americans with federal college loans are expected to qualify for forgiveness. That's about 40 million people. Americans who have federal student loans who earn less than $125,000 per year or married couples who earn less than $250,000 can say goodbye to as much as $10,000 in loans. And Pell Grant recipients are eligible for up to $20,000 of loan forgiveness too. But heads up here, some people who thought they might qualify actually don't. Specifically, people who have an older kind of student loan, known as a Federal Family Education Loan, or FEL. People with those loans got excluded from this plan after a series of legal challenges to Biden's forgiveness program. All right, now it's time to fill out that form. I'm heading to studentaid.gov slash debt hyphen relief slash application. Okay, it seems like I need some basic info on hand, but not much else, like my full name, contact info, date of birth, social security number, and confirmation that you meet the income requirements. And as a reminder at the top, it says you can apply up to December 31st, 2023. All right, this seems like it's just basically filling out a lot of information, confirming things like name and email, Alexandra Carr social security number. Okay, I can never remember my social security number, but I I think this is right. Okay, date of birth, phone number, email, confirm email. For some reason, I never type my email right the second time. And scrolling down to the end, there are basically just some statements you have to agree to, including that if they ask, you'll have to provide proof of income to the Department of Education, and you've got to check off a little box that this is not perjury, and then you hit submit. I think that was definitely less than 60 seconds. And if you have autofill on your computer, it's probably way less. So it seems like Team Biden took a page out of our book and tried to make this as skimmy as possible. As for when these apps might get approved, well, the DOE says they won't start processing loans before the end of the month, but that applicants will receive relief within four to six weeks once it begins processing them. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Whether or not we've realized it, politicians have had a huge impact on our lives this year. In a sweeping ruling that overturned a half a century of precedents, five justices ended the right of American women to choose abortion under the Constitution. Happening right now, the White House has just unveiled a plan to help people paying off their student loans. The president has already approved a major disaster declaration for Florida. And today, President Biden announced more military funding for Ukraine. And as Election Day quickly approaches, we're making sure you have all the tools you need to vote with confidence. Over the next three weeks, we're taking time to check in on what matters to you. And today, we'll dive into how this midterm election season could change the direction of our country, from Capitol Hill to your local school board to the 2024 presidential election. And here to help us dissect all of that is Jen Palmieri. She's a political insider who was White House Communications Director for President Obama 
and Deputy Press Secretary for President Bill Clinton. And she's now the current co-host of the political docuseries The Circus on Showtime. We'll hear from her in a minute, but first, we wanted to set the scene. The first thing at stake this midterm season is control of Congress. The Senate is split 50-50, and 34 of those 100 seats are on the ballot in November. While over in the House, things are a little less close. Democrats hold the majority by a slim margin, but that could soon change, since every House seat is up for re-election. Historically, midterm elections serve as a referendum on the White House or party in power. It's the first chance that voters get to weigh in on a recently elected president or Congress. And that typically means that after the midterms, power flips. This happened in 2010, when Republicans took control of the House following former President Obama's election. And again in 2018, when Democrats won big in the House after former President Trump took office. And over the last few months, we've heard a similar story about power flipping this November. Experts have been projecting that the GOP would likely take back control of Congress, as issues like record high inflation and economic uncertainty are pushing voters to reconsider who's in charge. But Palmieri said, it's a closer race than headlines would have you believe. Democrats are not doing as badly as you might think. I worked for President Obama. I worked for President Clinton. President Obama lost 62 seats in 2010. And he was slightly more popular than President Biden is right now. And also, we were not going through 40-year high inflation. Still, Democrats are not going to suffer the same kinds of losses. They may lose the House, but it doesn't take that much to lose the House. In fact, the GOP only needs six seats to be in control of the House. As for what would be on the agenda if that happens, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy has said that the Republican Party would pursue a slew of new investigations using the House's oversight power. They'd likely focus on some of the Biden administration's actions, like ending the war in Afghanistan and the Department of Justice investigation into former President Donald Trump. So that could happen if the House flips red. And if the Senate flips, experts say we'll likely see an effort to block President Biden's future nominations for federal court positions. But if the party balance stays the same, experts predict more partisan gridlock around major legislation will continue, aka business as usual. So midterms are all about who's in power. Another major reason we pay attention to these elections is because they can serve as an indicator for how the country will vote two years from now in the presidential election. Plus, we can start to see who might be thinking about a run for the White House. Analysts will be watching this year's hotly contested races in battleground states, like Michigan, Arizona, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. These races could reveal which party swing voters are leaning towards ahead of 2024. In the past, what has happened is president does badly in the midterms and then often comes back to win in re-election. If Democrats do poorly, it doesn't mean that a Democrat can't win in 2024. We will also see which candidates sort of emerge, who wins, to possibly run for president in 2024 on both sides. Ron DeSantis in Florida. If Biden doesn't run, I could see somebody like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan deciding that she's going to run for president. Gavin Newsom, governor of California. I could see him deciding that, too. And that brings us to the third reason we're watching these midterms. 
voters are deciding on who should control our election systems. The things we've talked about so far, like who gets control of Congress or who might run for president, are things that come up basically every midterm cycle. But control of election systems isn't something we've really talked about that much until now. This year, positions like Secretary of State, state legislators, and governors are some of the most closely watched races, even though we've been voting on them for years. That's mainly because 2020 election deniers are running for those positions around the country. And those positions oftentimes control how their state administers its elections. A closely watched example is the governor's race in Arizona, where Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate, spoke openly on the campaign trail about election fraud in 2020, despite there being no evidence of widespread fraud. Or take the governor's race in Pennsylvania, where the Republican candidate Doug Mastriano is an outspoken 2020 election denier and was at the Capitol on January 6th. The governor in Pennsylvania gets to appoint the secretary of state, who then makes decisions about how the state runs its elections. And while these candidates could affect how their own state manages elections, their influence can also go beyond the boundaries of their state. This is a time in history where big change is happening and people really need to engage in order to create the future that they're going to want to live in. If people get elected that refuse to abide by what voters decide, that could just be the beginning. I interviewed somebody who's running for Arizona Secretary of State. Doesn't seem like a very interesting office, but that person certifies the results of the election. They decide whether or not the electors go to Congress. What it revealed was how much power individual secretaries of states or governors have in passing on the results of the presidential election to Congress to be certified. And then also state legislators are making decisions about how you get to vote and how those rules are followed and how the votes are certified. All of the framework is getting tested at every level. So this November, the stakes are clear and voters are already showing that they're here to make their voices heard. On Monday, early voting started in Georgia. And according to state officials, the state has already seen an 85% increase in early voter turnout since the 2018 midterms. If you're looking for more resources to study up ahead of election day, head to theskim.com backslash 2022 midterms. We've got guides on some of the nation's tightest races. And we want to hear your thoughts on the midterms. So give us a call at 929-266-4381 and tell us why you're voting or what issues are fueling your trip to the ballot box. How often do you and your boss talk about mental health? What about you and your coworkers or you and your team? The answer for a lot of us is never or certainly not often. But according to the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Morthy, that's a mistake. Because Americans are in the middle of a mental health crisis. And work, you know, that place where you spend over half your life, can be a big part of why. According to new data from the Surgeon General's office, 
84% of Americans who responded to a recent survey said at least one workplace factor had a negative impact on their mental health. For those of us who are working, have worked, or have even just watched a TV show about the modern workplace, you have made my life so much easier in that I am going to have to let you go first. This data is unfortunately not surprising. So this week, the Surgeon General's office put out first-of-its-kind guidelines for offices and workplaces. This framework highlights what they're calling the five essentials that workplaces need to invest in to best support the mental health of their employees, from providing people with a sense of connection to finding purpose and opportunity at work. To learn more, we actually spoke to the Surgeon General this week. Dr. Morthy, my first question for you is, why did you start looking at this topic in the first place? Was there something that was particularly concerning to you or that stood out? Well, Alex, I've been very concerned about the overall mental health and well-being of our country. We have been struggling during this pandemic for sure, but with mental health, our struggles began even before the pandemic. And we know the workplace is a key factor. And for many people, the pandemic pushed them to rethink you know, about their relationship with work. So I issued this framework on workplace well-being. It's the first time this has been done from the Surgeon General's office. But I did so because I wanted to lay out what the key foundations are for creating a workplace that can be an engine for mental health and well-being. I'm curious what data you were able to gather as you were preparing to release this framework that explained especially that changing link between the pandemic and work. I'll give you a couple of numbers that stood out to me. One is number 84%. That is the percentage of respondents uh, to one survey uh, in the Harvard Business Review who said that there was at least one workplace factor that was driving a negative impact on their mental health. But the second is the number 81. That is now the percent of workers who are saying that they are going to look for, going forward, a workplace that supports mental health and well-being. All of this data, all of these conversations that we had, they helped us to come up with five key essentials that are critical as foundations for workplace well-being. So one of those is protection from harm. People in the workplace want to be safe. You know, they want to know they're physically and psychologically safe, but they also want to have access to mental health support. So while they're there, they want to work in a diverse and inclusive environment. The second essential was around community and connection. It turns out that having strong social connections, a sense of community in our workplace is incredibly important and is a buffer to stress. The third was around work-life harmony. And that means that paid leave, flexibility and schedule, respecting work-life boundaries is so important. And then the last two essentials were mattering at work. It's so important for us to know that we matter and that our work matters. And that's not only about expressing gratitude, but it's giving workers a voice at the table when decisions are made. And finally, opportunities for growth. So together, these five form the foundation for workplaces that can support mental health and well-being. It seems like this framework actually puts a lot of the onus on workplaces to solve these issues. And from your perspective, is there something that the federal government could be doing that it isn't to address some of these topics? Yeah, it's such an important question, Alex, because one of the reasons I have been focus really broadly on mental health and well-being is because it requires all of us in society, government, workplaces, educational institutions, private citizens, to all ask, what can we do to help address mental health? 
There's a lot the government can do and has already started to do. We know that expanding access to mental health care is incredibly important. You know, if government can do that by helping invest in the workforce and telemedicine, using technology to make care available at a distance, this can help workplaces as well to make those options then even more readily available to to their workers. And that's why it's been so important, in fact, that President Biden has made this a priority. He laid that out in the State of the Union speech. That's why we've invested already millions and millions of dollars in expanding access to care. So I'd like that there are other steps that government can take. You know, we know certainly when it comes to paid leave, for example, that that that's a place where government could play an important role as well. The bottom line is this has to be a partnership between workplaces and government and communities at large. What would you say to lawmakers if you could have one message for them around the topic of workplace and mental health and something that they could do? Like, what would your message be? My message would be that the most important asset we have in our workplaces and our organizations are our people. If our people are not well, then workplaces and organizations can't be healthy. So we have to invest in the mental health and well-being of our workers. And this is the right time for us to make that a critical priority. This is the time to make the changes that will ultimately support workers for the long term. For someone who isn't running their business or is maybe middle management or newer in their company and they want their organization to start paying attention to these principles, what would you say to them about how to get that conversation started? I'm glad you raised it because you don't have to be the CEO of a company in order to take this framework and to start making changes and starting conversations in your workplace. If you're, let's say, you know, a middle manager in a company, you have folks whose lives you impact. That could be five people, it could be three people, it could be 20 people. But in that group, you have the power to make changes, whether they're policy changes or cultural changes, how you foster community, how you help people know they matter, how you provide the kind of feedback that helps people grow. So you can make an impact there. But even if you have nobody reporting to you, if you're a worker who's impacted by what the folks above you do, you can start conversations with your coworkers. You can share this kind of framework with them and ask them if these are important to them as well, if they find that that these five essentials are present in their workplace. But you can also take this and talk to your managers about it as well and say, look, you know, this framework has helped you understand that there are certain things that you have in the workplace, but a couple things that are missing. How could you work together with them to ensure that not just you, but all workers have these five essentials met? Dr. Morthy, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. When I was in kindergarten, that first garden my parents put in looked like the miracle Grow test garden. Everything was so huge and abundant. That fall when we went to the fair, I saw some behemoths. I just knew someday that was going to be me. I'm Cindy Tobek, giant pumpkin grower. Cindy Tobek is one of many growers who competes annually in giant pumpkin way-offs. Great Pumpkin, where are you? These competitions happen in states across the country, from Arkansas to Washington, and also around the world, from Italy to Japan. So consider this another niche sport to add to your watch list. And as we started to look into it, the giant pumpkin community seemed to be pretty male-dominated. So we jumped at the chance to talk to Tobek, who's one of the top female growers. 
Last year, Tobek grew the second largest squash ever recorded, clocking in at over 2,000 pounds. We were dying to know how growers like Tobek prep for competition. And she told us people start getting ready way before spooky season officially starts. First, you've got to pick your seeds, and that's already a high-stakes process. There's a website called bigpumpkins.com, and that's where the clubs hold their online auctions. And unproven, brand-new seeds that have never produced before, those will typically go for $20, but for a rare, proven producer, maybe something that has produced a regional or national or world record, I've seen them go for upwards of $1,000. I mean, these are seeds. <laughs> And people are paying big money for them, but there is a lot of money in giant pumpkin growing. I will buy a few seeds at auction to support the clubs, but realistically, as one of the few lady growers in the world, I don't really have to do that. I just ask nicely. <laughs> then you've got to start planting, which involves a lot of trial and error. This year, I started eight plants. I start those seeds April 15th, typically right around tax day. And I probably spend two hours a day in the patch, burying, pruning, fertilizing. I started with eight. I ended up with six. Finding that seed is probably the first and most important part of that process. And then, of course, giving them enough room to vine out because they really want to take over your whole area <laughs> if they can. They'll grow upwards of 2,000 square feet if you let them, which is a pretty good-sized chunk of real estate. Once you've grown your mega pumpkin, it's time to haul it to the way-off, or for Tobek, multiple way-offs. That's where she competes with other growers to see who's got the most BGE or Big Gourd Energy. And these competitions aren't just for bragging rights. There's some real cash at stake too. We have a lot of way-offs here on the West Coast for recognized events in Washington, two in Oregon and several in California. California pays the big money. Just this year, I made over $20,000. And we should also point out, these competitions aren't just casually held on the side of the road. There's a governing body of the world of mega pumpkin growing called the Great Pumpkin Commonwealth, or the GPC. And the GPC has some pretty strict rules, like only one pumpkin per event and no repeats, which means there's a strategy for picking which pumpkins you're gonna show off. Like showing up with your best pumpkin when your competitors only brought their second or third choice means you could be wasting the opportunity to win big money elsewhere. It's very much like a big poker game. I've used like social media a little bit to my advantage in that regard. A lot of us pumpkin growers have online pumpkin diaries. People are posting on YouTube, posting on their Facebook accounts, and many of us across the world are Facebook friends. So if I think like this year, I've got something big, I'm going to try to tell the world and get it out there. Hey, I might have the new world record squash this year and I'm going to Nut Tree in California. So if you think you've got something bigger and badder, I'll meet you at the scale. 
And Toback always shows up ready to squash the competition. It's fun being one of the only lady growers in this endeavor. I feel like I have a lot of license to have fun just being a lady. Most of the growers are middle-aged men. And so when they go to the way off, you might get a smile out of them, might get a thumbs up and their pumpkin hits the scale and they get a good weight. Very stoic, pretty reserved. When my pumpkin hits the scale, I just sometimes come unglued. I climb up on it, flexing my muscles, yelling, high-fiving everyone in the crowd. I feel like I kind of have license to do that. If hearing about the intense, fast-paced world of pumpkin growing has piqued your interest, Tobek says now is a great time to get in on the fun. If you want to get into giant pumpkin growing, and we need more ladies in this sport, then look me up because I am willing to help you. But really also the community is willing to help. The easiest way might be to join a pumpkin club in your area. And those are pretty easy to find just with a Google search here in the Pacific Northwest. We've got two pumpkin clubs. When you join those clubs, not only are you making it so you can network with other growers, you're also going to get a bunch of free seeds from your region and hopefully some good ones. The way off season is over for this year and some results are still being tallied. But if you've got a green thumb, start looking for seeds. I'm gonna stick to killing the houseplants in my apartment. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Hannah Parker. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast, It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.